You know, those kinds of rituals are not only important, but they, they're a blessing. They're a privilege. Um, nothing better than believing parents <clears throat> dedicating their children unto the Lord. That's what we are supposed to do. It is, we all know that our parents, a daunting task to, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But he will be our help. The scripture that I'd like for us to now turn our attention to is found in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And there are just a couple of verses that I want to read from the fourth and then the fifth <clears throat> chapter. In the fourth, first Thessalonians, we'll just read verse three. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Then in the fifth chapter, <clears throat> at, after Paul's closing exhortations and really what we would call normally the benediction of his letter in the 23rd verse of chapter 5 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely or entirely or Martin Luther trans translated it through and through and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. <clears throat> Two Sundays ago, using <clears throat> the scripture from Ephesians that we, it says, are to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We looked at three reasons that we could call positive, meaning something that we received. Why should we be filled with the Spirit? And the three reasons between Ephesians and then the book of Acts, chapter 2, on the, the report of the day of Pentecost, that the disciples um, encountered and in which they received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That, the positive reasons why sh we should be filled with the Spirit. For power, Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to live in this wicked world. Power to be. Power to do. So power, then second, purity, signified by the tongues of fire, individual tongues of fire that sat upon the heads of each of the 120 in the upper room. And then third, a purpose that lasts for life. 
Jesus said, when this occurs to you, when you receive the Spirit in his fullness, you will then be witnesses to me in Judea and Samaria, in the rest of, or to, the rest of the world. Clear to the ends of the earth. That's our purpose. There, you'll notice that to be a witness for Jesus, there's a qualification required. That qualification is not only that I am born of God, but a synonym for being filled with the Spirit is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Another synonym Paul uses when he, the scripture we just read, I pray that you would be sanctified, purified through and through. The qualification then is a heart purity that is not ours yet even though we have been born again. We've been converted. We're saved. All of the scriptures that speak to our sins being forgiven, we're initiated into the household of God. We're members of the household of God. We are justified, Roman says, we're justified with God and we have peace with God. We, the enmity of rebellion which produces thousands of acts of sinning and the habitual sinning and rebelling against God which produces bondage I cannot break without supernatural intervention from God to free me from the bondage to the practice of sinning. When that occurs, my name's written in heaven. I'm a child of God. I'm adopted into the family of God. But there remains something yet for God to do to me. This is, and it's critical. I, I wonder, I hope that people aren't saying to themselves, um, you know, I wish that we didn't hear this as frequently as we do. I'd quote Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, the letter of the Hebrews, simply says this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered outside of the city gate on the cross that with his own blood, he might sanctify the people. The word the people is not just humanity. It's a phrase indicating the people of God, the believers. He's, he shed his blood so that he could purify our hearts. Subsequently, to being converted. There are two distinct acts of God on the human heart that Jesus died to provide. 
because there are two distinct aspects to the disease of sin that God brought Jesus to the earth to cure. And I mentioned, I will be much more brief than I was in the early service, but this two works of grace is illustrated, and I, by the way, I say this to you so that there are men, there's some of you here, many of you here, I suppose, and in the early service who have heard this preached. There may be many that think, I have never heard of this baptism of the Spirit or being sanctified like, again, Martin Luther translated it, through and through. I don't know what this is about. I've never heard of it. I want you to relax and not think this is a wacky church. I don't know what in the world this business is all about. Never heard this before. Let me hopefully encourage you with this. The idea that there is a work of grace to deal with personal sins that we are guilty of committing and the bondage that results from it. And then later, some separation of time, it could be very greatly, it can vary from person to person, that there is a second work in which not personal sins that I've been guilty of are forgiven. This second work of grace is not for forgiveness. It's for cleansing. It's for purifying. And its synonyms are entire, as we read here, entire sanctification, baptized with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, purified by faith. Those are a number of biblical terms describing it that are all synonyms for the exact same thing. But they're illustrated, and the proof, the demonstration that the idea that the, that the human heart needs two distinct works of grace is illustrated in two rituals that much of the church still practices. One is baptism. Baptism is for the washing away of sins, personal sins. Whether it's adult baptism or in infant baptism, bringing that little soul who is now covered by the atonement. The sad, as a side note, the sad fact is every single infant that is brought to the house of God to dedicate unto him is innocent, is covered as we read in the ritual by the atonement, and that means they, if, if, if they should perish, they have an entrance instantly into the very presence of God. They are children of God. Every human child face of the earth, that's true of. Unfortunately, every one of those children also are born with a bent to sinning, a bent to rebellion. That lays low for a while. It will rear its head 
long before that child has any consciousness at all of what they're doing. But as I've mentioned, those of you that have children, you, you fairly um, early, let's say in the first year at least, you're going to recognize that no, you don't have to instruct them how to throw fits. Um, when they get a slightly bit older, um, you don't have to sit them down and say, now look, here's how you fight over that toy in the church nursery or, or with your brother or sister. You need to learn, and I got to drill it in your mind, how to be selfish and fight and grab a toy from the other kid. You don't have to do that. Why? Because unsadly, God said, around the time of the flood, he said, sadly, the heart of every human, he said, is prone to evil, and listen to these words, prone to evil always, all the time. In everything and all the time is prone. And the word there, some translations say from their youth, it literally means the Hebrew word there's infancy. God tells us the unvarnished truth that there is a tendency to self-centeredness and rebellion against authority, whatever the authority is, and we, no one can be blind to that. That's the core problem with the human race, and that's what Jesus came to Calvary to deal with. Now, we recognize, and is, it is an ancient, ancient set of rituals that indicate from the very, very earliest of Christianity they recognized that there's a double problem calling for a double cure. And the illustration is found in the existence of two rituals. One is baptism. The second is confirmation. Now, not every denomination practices confirmation. There are even some denominations um, that don't outwardly practice baptism. We won't get into all that. But what are those rituals? In some cases, they're considered sacraments. Some churches don't consider confirmation necessarily a sacrament, but nevertheless, they are, and here's the best definition, they are an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. That's the definition of what these rituals are. Now here's the problem with rituals in general. Humans, we can't hardly resist it. We end up focusing more on the symbol than on what is symbolized so that through the evolution 
of doctrines down through 2,000 years of Christianity, there are a number of people that end up, whether they're totally conscious of it or not, they put the power in the ritual, not in the faith of the recipient. Okay? I can be, um, and I'm, I'm picking on no denominations here, um, and this, <clears throat> uh, I think it was Loyola um, back in, I don't even know, 12s or whenever, founder of the Jesuits. He went around with a, a, I guess, a flask or whatever of holy water and would go into the marketplaces of villages and cities and indiscriminately and over whole groups of people would sprinkle holy water on all of them and said, when asked what he was doing, I'm making Christians. That doesn't make a Christian. Why did he do that? Because the doctrine had evolved, unfortunately, that there was power in that water itself. There isn't. It's a symbol. It's like a wedding band. That marries you. No, it doesn't marry you. It's a symbol that you took vows and you committed to each other. And that's what marries you. Not that ring, which is the symbol. Any more than water all by itself saves anybody. Nor does confirmation do anything unless it's accompanied by faith in the recipient. Okay? Now, back to these two rituals. Baptism is a symbol of being washed from sin, being initiated into the family of God, adopted into God's family. Well, what is confirmation? Confirmation grows out of the ancient recognition in the first century of the church that we are both forgiven of our sins individually and second, we are to anticipate even in the ritual of baptism itself, it points to a further baptism. Well, where in the world do you get that? I get it from John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I'm baptizing with water for the remission, which is the taking away of sins. Okay? And then he pointed at Jesus and he said, He who comes after me, who's greater than I am, he will also baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is everywhere a symbol of purifying, burning up the dross so that we have pure metal left. Proverbs, there's a little, little verse buried back in the Proverbs. Take away the dross from the silver, and the silversmith now has material for a vessel 
I can't make a beautiful vessel out of even silver unless the dross is removed. It's the same thing Jesus said to the disciples. Don't go out and try to preach and represent me and be vessels for me until the dross has been removed from your heart by being filled with the Holy Spirit, which occurred on the day of Pentecost. Baptism then, down through church history, has always stood for forgiveness of personal sins, whereas those uh, denominations and groups that still practice confirmation. Confirmation, for instance, um, in, in Catholicism, confirmation couldn't be any plainer. It says that they, you receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at confirmation. Methodists, Anglicans, Church of England, Lutheran, many Presbyterian, a lot of denominations practice both baptism, of course, and confirmation. They stand, their emblems, symbols, of the two baptisms, one with water that John brought, baptism with the Holy Spirit, Jesus brought. And Jesus is still the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. So this, I tell you all that, so that you might think, boy, I've never heard this kind of crazy preaching in my life. I've never heard of sanctification. I don't know what in the world he's talking about. I wish he quit talking about it. And I don't know where in the world that came from. Listen, I don't know what preachers I can blame it on, but this is ancient. It's biblical. It's from the beginning of the Christian church. So this isn't an unusual notion. Now, I said all that to say this. Paul, just kind of in the middle, not really in the middle, and he's prepared other ways, but he, in the benediction, the closing sentences, paragraph, of this wonderful letter to the Thessalonians. And I don't have time to go into detail, except let me just say this. No one disagrees with me. Um, everyone takes the position, every commentator that I've ever read, there is no church in the New Testament as good as the church in Thessalonica. This church that Paul wrote to twice is the gold standard in the New Testament. They had the fewest problems on the other end of the scales, the Corinthians. He wrote them two letters too. And I'm sure Paul was just going like this as he was writing to them. They were nothing but trouble. And they, as a minister, I think as a pastor, they drove him nuts. Thessalonica, oh, they were a great church. He commended them. He says, There's, your faith flourishes. Your love is evident. Your hope lifts you up. And he said, you love the brethren. And he said, you have such a reputation, you Thessalonians, on the peninsula down, well, it would be north of Athens in Greece. He said, all of Macedonia, which is up way up north, everyone, he said, has heard of your faith and heard how you turn from idols to serve the living God. Thessalonians, th these two letters, 
are absolutely filled with praise, commendations, encouragement, um, boasting, the right kind of boasting by Paul. What a wonderful church. Yet he says, it's God's will that you be sanctified. And then he prays, oh, he said, I pray that the God of peace would sanctify you. And the word there, which is inescapable, is not a present tense or continuous word that he continually sanctify you through all, that, through all your life. He didn't say that. It is a completed action verb. I pray that he sanctifies you, purifies your heart, baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. All those synonyms I gave you earlier. Now, if the best church in the New Testament still needed a further work, they'd been soundly converted. We know that. Paul said so repeatedly. In fact, Jesus of the disciples prayed for them the night before he was crucified in the high priestly prayer, John 17. Over and over he said to his father, they are yours. They've received my word. They have believed on me. They have believed that you sent me into the world. These disciples were clearly believers. Then Jesus in the middle of that prayer said, but Father, sanctify them. Then he said, and lest there be confusion, the next verse he said, and so that they might be sanctified, I sanctify myself. Well, people wonder, well, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't need to be sanctified. Correct. He already is pure. He doesn't need the purification aspect of the word sanctify. But the word sanctify also means to be utterly set apart for God's use. Jesus said, I set myself apart for the agony of the cross that I might purify these men who he said are already set apart by God to God. They needed something deeper and further. Now, the presence of that bent that we see early in our children remains after we're saved, after we become Christians, after we're baptized with water for the mission of sin. You'll have to take my word for it. There is not a Christian denomination, and I don't care how wacky they might be on the peripheral, there's not a single Christian denomination on the face of the globe that doesn't also believe that after we are initiated into the family of God, we still have something we were born with that must be dealt with. We divide over how it's dealt with. Many say you just struggle with it, tamp it down, screw the lid on it, rest your days. Death delivers you. Others believe that God can cleanse that from our hearts so that we are aligned and we, we, we run true. That's what I'm preaching. That's what I believe Scripture shows us. But the presence of that bent remaining in the heart of the believer produces some symptoms 
And there are four, I'm sure there are more, but there are at least four that I want to just quickly run through as reasons why Paul prayed. I pray that they be sanctified. Why should we be? What are some reasons? One, sanctification, I'll use Paul's term, entire sanctification, purification, takes the wobble out of our walk. A characteristic of what Paul called, writing to the Corinthians, carnal Christians. Same thing to the Romans. A signal, a major symptom in carnal Christians is an unstable walk, an inconsistent Christian walk, up and down. We see it in the lives of the Israelites in the wilderness. They were praising God one day, and the next day they were going to go back to Egypt. And they were, they were just waffling. And the disciples for three years, we see them. Jesus blessing, saying, blessed art thou, Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood's re not revealed to you, but my Father, that I'm the Son of God. And literally, in the Scripture, it isn't two or three verses later, in the same conversation, that Jesus had to just nail Peter's hide to the wall. He said, get behind me, adversary. Use the word Satan, but it means you adversary of me because you're into the things that are of men, not the things that are of God. Why that waffling and that imbalance and that inconsistency? It's that bent that remains, that trips us up. James said, the double-minded, that's the Christian who's still carnal. The double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. It's true. It takes the wobble out of the walk of a Christian. Second, it takes the weakness out of our will. We can often... Jesus even referred to the disciples when they went to sleep in the garden and this was before they'd experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It was the night before the crucifixion. And he said, the Spirit is willing. We resolve, Lord, I am going to walk with you. I'm going to go upstream against this wicked world. I am not going to get sucked in with some of the conversations at work or whatever else. Lord, I'm going to... There are jokes. <laughs> there are jokes, unfortunately, um, in the Christian world about how many people resolve at New Year's to read through the Bible in this coming year and how few are still at it by the end of January. <laughs> Okay? Does that mean they're, they're intentional deceivers, they're liars? No. We know what it means to will to do something, but somehow our will caves. It's just like the disciples. They told Jesus in the garden as a mob with torches came to arrest Jesus. They told Jesus, we'll be with you. I tell you what, we're going to death with you if we have to. When it looked like this thing was going south, they were literally like cockroaches. 
They were gone. That's weakness in our will. They needed to have that weakness burned out of their hearts so they could be strong and stay strong. Third thing, why we need to be, why Paul prayed for us all, that we be sanctified. It takes the willfulness out of our wants. We want a lot of things. Most of the things we want are things that God put the desire for in our hearts when he created us. Not only physical needs and so forth, but all the emotional. We, we want to be appreciated. We want to, we want to be loved. That's normal. We want a sense of accomplishment. We want to, in the right sense, have people notice and to hear, you did a good job. I, I, you know, evaluations at work or whatever that commend you. We want those. And God put that in our hearts. There's nothing wrong with that. We want security. We want, the Bible even says, Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes talks about, Lord, don't give me so much money that I get puffed up and lose God. But don't give me so little that I'm tempted to steal. Just let me have enough that I'm comfortable. Now, the definition of comfortable is a pretty wide word. But God put those in our hearts. There's nothing wrong with those. But just infect that with the bent to sinning, which a good definition of it is excessive love of self. You infect those once with excessive love of self, and they become demands and insistent demands. I want this, and we'll even let that come into our hearts and attitude when we pray and we, when we ask God for things. We can even find ourselves almost in a contest with God. I want this. And we, our prayer takes on a kind of demand. Uh, it doesn't sit too well with God. He's not going to get out of his chair real quick to give you that when we get that attitude. It is, if it be your will. If not, that's okay. Lord, your ways are always right, always wise, always good. Thy will be done. It takes the willfulness and the insistence out of our wants. Finally, <clears throat> it takes <clears throat> the woe <clears throat> out of our wounds. Woe is intense grief or intense pain. What do I mean here? This world, when we are thrust out into it, is going to wound us. It's going to hurt our feelings. Even in the most sheltered of situations, we're going to have our feelings hurt. We're going to have our toes walked on. We're going to have failures passed over for promotions, whatever the case might be. We will be wounded. It's what we do with those. And we're in a culture today, and the America is absolutely soaked in this attitude of victimhood. And it's the worst thing that ever happened since Adam and Eve that happened to me and, 
and you just need to know what it was and the pain I feel. Get 330 million people that act like that in our country and this is what you got. Everybody, listen, every last one of you have got to kowtow to my rights, my opinions, their right, and I have my rights, and you don't realize the hurt you've brought to me. And so all of you are supposed to come groveling to me and make me feel better. And again, have every single one of us act like that? What do you got? Utter, total mayhem. And that's what we got in our country. Everybody's, everybody's a whiny little runny-nosed baby. I mean, what is that? Well, it's lack of education, it's poverty, it's racist. No, it's not any of that stuff. It's excessive love of me. A.W. Tozer, who was a great, great, great writer, put it so simply, these two works of grace, and I'll leave with that. He says, first, we have to forsake our sins, our sinning. Then he says, but then we have to go on and forsake ourselves. There it is. Many people have forsaken their sins, truly, and they're believers. But they've not gone on to forsake themselves. And that gives us a wobbly walk, exaggerated wounds, insistence on our own rights, and we're, we're yet carnal. We're double-minded. God wants to cure that. So then we can be the kind of witnesses Jesus wants us to be. Let's bow our heads <clears throat> for prayer. We are only two minutes over. Let these things soak on your heart, I ask. Father in heaven, as we quiet our hearts at the end of the service today, as always, Lord, I know you're faithful to speak to each one of us individually as we need spoken to. And for that, I praise you. Thank you for having the opportunity to witness a baptism of a little girl today, Lord. That what it symbols, that action, and then have our pastor express to us there's more to be done. You tell us in your word that we need to forsake all to follow you. But as our pastor leaned into at the end of the service, Lord, we're willing to do that in a lot of areas, except for when it comes to forsaking myself, surrendering myself to you. The one thing that keeps me from this, allowing this deeper work to be done in my heart is me. I pray, Lord, today that we just be very honest in our conversations with you. We be very honest with our response to what we've heard today from your word. And within that honesty, Lord, realize what you desire to do. 
And we don't do that in our own strength. We do that by surrendering to you. We do that by your grace. So may we be a church that would echo the words of our Savior in the garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. This is your will, Lord. Help us to get ourselves in a position to die to ourselves, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.